Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Travel writer Pico Iyer, who said, 
We run and run from who we are, only to discover, of course, that that is precisely what we can never put behind us. And I feel like in our sitting practice, we have a chance to get to know ourselves very intimately. And when we practice with others in a sangha like this, um, uh, Suzuki Roshi said that practicing together is like milk and water mixing. But he also said it's like a bunch of rocks in a in a jar getting with the rough edges getting worn down over time. Uh, so maybe both of those things are true. So I come from the Soto Zen tradition. We call our meditation zazen. And when we sit zazen, we sit still in the midst of a crazy world, not leaning to the left nor the right, neither forward nor backward. And we return again and again to the breath. And I feel like when we sit, we're voluntarily imposing a limitation on ourselves. You know, for a while, we're not going to do what we usually do. We're just going to sit in the middle of our life, uh, keeping our spine straight, sitting in a particular way, choosing for a time to do this rather than something else. And I think that within this limitation, we can find a tremendous freedom. Now, of course, our mind wanders when we sit. That's what the mind does. And I feel that meditation is that moment when we come back to the breath. We come back to ourselves. We come back to our true nature over and over again. I have to tell you, though, um, I did practice at Tassajara for three years and then went back for 10 years every summer to cook for the guests. And during those that three years, those were practice periods where we were closed to the public. And we would have many, many seven-day sittings where we would sit from 4.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, you know, with breaks in between. And I have to tell you that during one of those seven-day sessions, I did write a musical comedy. <laughs> and it was, it was a satire based on, on Zen practice, uh, which I call, you know, I said, we sit Zaz, and I called it the Wizard of Zaz. <laughs> now, of course, because I wrote it, I got to play Dorothy. Uh, so I wasn't coming back to my breath too much during that time. The last time I was here, I spoke about my own recovery from alcoholism, and for me, alcohol is a kind of metaphor for something we all struggle with, uh, which is our very human craving for things to be different than the way that they are. And the Buddha taught that our self-created suffering is caused by craving or desire. And the word for that in Sanskrit is tanha, which is translated as thirst. So for those of us who are in recovery from substances, that's a very literal kind of thing for us. But uh, when I talk about alcohol, it's kind of a, a metaphor. Uh, and by the way, I think we're all in recovery from something, some dark thing that rolled into our life. Uh, so um, whether or not we're literally in recovery, we need to confront our self-defeating and, and self-destructive habits of mind or body. Uh, practice offers something precious to all of us, which is the freedom of restraint, the freedom to pause before we act or speak. And we can ask ourselves, is this going to be a benefit to myself and others, or will this be a destructive word or action? So as I speak today, please uh, let the word addiction be a metaphor for the suffering caused by 
by this very human craving. None of us are are immune to that to that craving. Uh, for me, when I finally made the decision not to drink or use drugs, my true freedom as a human being began. I learned to pause and reflect and before mindlessly repeating the patterns of habitual self-destructive behavior that I'd engaged in since I'd been a teenager. Why did I do that? Because I did not want to be in this mind and body. And I wanted to escape myself. But as Pico Iyer points out, that's quite impossible. So in practice, we got a practice and recovery to this, this pause, this this turn again and again, no matter what we are confronted with. And this, this is what I call the alchemy of recovery. Um, Buddhist practice is also kind of a alchemy, our practice of sitting quietly alone or with other people, coming back to the breath, and watching what arises within us. Sometimes those things are troubling or things we've tried to push aside. But by opening our heart to those dark places in ourself, I think we're more able to extend ourselves to other people. As a practice, practicing alcoholic, I was in the thrall of my instincts, like a character in a fairy tale that is under some kind of curse or magic spell. And I never really experienced freedom from this, this curse or spell until I got sober, until I entered the rooms of recovery and began to work with others towards, towards my recovery. This is the gem or the heart of recovery is we get clean and sober ourselves from whatever our addiction and then we extend a helping hand to others and that redeems all the crazy things that we did, you know. Um, I, uh, before I came into recovery, I would have periods of restraint that would last a week or a month or at one point five years, but that next drink was always waiting for me. Stories from our Western tradition can be a kind of window into what Buddha calls the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And in Rumpelstiltskin, the the classic Grimm's fairy tale, a miller is chatting with the king, and he wants to impress him, so he mentions that his daughter is able to spin straw into gold. The very next day, the king installs this daughter in a dark room with a pile of straw and a spinning wheel. And he says, now spin, or tomorrow you will die. And the poor girl begins to cry piteously. She doesn't know how to spin straw in the gold. And then suddenly this funny little man appears. Good evening, Miller's daughter, he says, tipping his hat. How did you get in here, says the miller's daughter. The door is locked. No matter, said the little man. Listen to me. If you give me your necklace, I will spin this pile of straw into gold. Without a thought, she placed the trinket in his hand, and he sat down at the spinning wheel, and whirr, 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 the pile of straw was transformed into a pile of gold, a a glimmering gold. So this went on for a few nights, the little man appearing, the miller's daughter offering him her bracelet, her ring, in exchange for his magic. Finally, she rashly agrees to give the little man her firstborn child, 
if he will spin this last pile of straw into gold. For who knows if she really will be queen, and if she is queen, who knows if she'll ever have a child. A year later, at dusk, the queen is playing with her beautiful daughter when the little man appears to exact his reward. When the queen begins to cry, a tiny little corner of his heart melts, and he tells her that if she can guess his name, he will go away and never bother her again. Of course he knows she will never be able to guess his name. The next night when he returns, she gives him every name she can think of, and the following night as well. No, 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 that's not my name, crows the little man. So the queen sends a servant out to look far and wide to collect the strangest names he can find. When the servant returns, he tells the miller's daughter that the night before, as he made his way through a mountain pass, he saw a very peculiar sight. He saw a funny little man dancing around a fire and singing, Today my flour I make, tomorrow my bread I bake, tomorrow, 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 the queen's little baby I take, for lucky I am, as lucky as I came, for Rumpelstiltskin is my name. When the little man appears that evening, the queen is waiting for him, sitting in the garden with her little daughter on her lap. Well, Miller's daughter, this is your last chance. Can you guess my name? The queen smiled. Is it Balthazar? No. Is it Thibault? No. Is it, could it be, let me see, is it Rumpelstiltskin? At that, the little man burst into a furious rage, sputtering and howling. He stomps his feet so hard that a hole in the earth opens up beneath him and swallows him into the darkness, never to be seen again. <laughs> so let's look at this story from both a practice point of view and and recovery point of view, whatever we're recovering from. In this story, the miller makes an offhand comment to the king, craving, he's craving the king's approval and trying to impress him. The daughter must then take up the burden of her father's unlived life. He's trying to get something through her that he never found himself. Um, Having been given a life-threatening challenge to do the impossible, to spin straw into gold, this is what the father uh, leads her to have to do, we won't even get into the fact that then she'll have to marry somebody who threatens her with death. Uh, we never even learn her real name. You know, First she's the miller's daughter, and then she's the queen. And it is her father's offhand comment that condemns her to a small, dark room. We might say that the miller projects his unexpressed creativity, his own craving for fame and fortune onto this unwitting daughter. Like many parents, he unconsciously tries to live his life through his child. Many of us who grew up in abusive or alcoholic homes, uh, homes with mental illness or homophobia or racism, you know, we swore we would never repeat the patterns we grew up with. That, that were taught to us by the adults in our lives. But sometimes the very pain of growing up around addiction, violence, or mental illness led us towards self-medication. 
And it might have been our genetic destiny we know now to turn towards addiction. And it can be really mystifying to find that despite our best intentions, we're repeating the ancient twisted karma of our family history. That's a line from our our full moon ceremony in Buddhism where we come together and uh, kind of make amends for our, our unskillful behavior. Our ancient twisted karma. You know, we can't even know what kind of influences have caused us to do the things that we do. So the little man does this miraculous thing. He spins straw into gold. And at first, our addiction seems to give us what we don't have, euphoria, self-confidence, expansiveness, courage. I felt all those things the very first time I took a drink. We bargain with this addiction or with our unskillful behavior, giving away little parts of ourself in exchange for the big yes of addiction. But in the end, one by one, addiction takes away from us what it first seemed to provide us with. The miller's daughter offers the little man a necklace, a ring. But as time goes by, she forgets her enormous debt to him, the debt that must be paid. Finally, he returns to her and demands of her what she promised, the most precious thing she has, this beautiful child. And from a psychological point of view or the point of view of addiction, you might say that we're finally asked to give over the most precious things we have, our hope, our life force, our future. In the story, these things are symbolized by the newborn baby. And sadly, many who struggle with addiction actually have to sacrifice their child because they're unable to take care of that child. Those of us who are in recovery may have seen addiction as freedom and sobriety as a limitation, but each of us finally came to a fork in the road and had to choose between the limitation of addiction and the freedom of recovery. And what does the Miller's daughter have to do? She's presented with a rare opportunity, the opportunity to name this demon that wants to take everything from her. And it's by naming this greedy little demon that she's finally free of him. And he's so angry that he stomps a hole in the earth and disappears. When I was a little girl, this is a story I love to have told to me over and over again. And I got goosebumps when I think, could you really get so angry that you would stomp a hole in the ground and disappear? <laughs> you know, that's, that's the thing that got my attention. And I think our addiction and our unskillful and self-defeating habits, whatever they are, begin to lose their power over us when we finally turn towards them and give them a name, when we concede to our inmost self that what we thought was gold was really straw. And we understand now that this elixir, so so magical in life, affirming first, wants to take away from us the most precious thing we have, our life. St. Thomas quotes Jesus as saying, If you bring forth that which is within you, that which you bring forth will save you. And if you don't bring forth that which is within you, what you don't bring forth will destroy you. So anything we do in our life that obstructs this ability to bring forth our potential, 
to bring forth our loving kindness, to bring forth our our courage and our and our integrity. You know, things that may have been blocked by our negative habits or negative minds. You know, that can just be corrosive self-pity or corrosive resentment towards other people. Um, so if we're under the spell of, of addiction, we're unable to fully call forth this precious potential that resides within us, and we're trapped. Many, many addicts and I myself talk about the narrow little place we find ourselves when we, we hit bottom, when we come to the end of, of our addiction. And this is like the dark little room that the miller's daughter finds herself in. We all have our own kind of demon, our own delusions, our own cravings. And our practice begins wholeheartedly when we turn towards those things and face this little man, this demon, this monster, this dragon, Mara, you might call it in Buddhist terms, and give it a name, its true name. For those of us in recovery, this, this demon happens to be named addiction, and we find a world of freedom on the other side of this thick wall. But first, we must name the demon. We must name it and turn towards it. Until I named this demon that controlled me, I had no true freedom. I was locked powerless in a little room, the little dark room that addiction took me to. And just by being willing, in the very first meeting I went to, I raised my hand and said, I'm Laura and I'm an alcoholic. I wasn't sure about that. You know, I knew many people that drank more than I did. And uh, they didn't have to... (laughs) They didn't have to come to recovery. They did later, many of them. But um, when I when I did that, when I was willing to identify myself as an alcoholic, and and miraculously suddenly becoming willing to ask for help, that was huge. Uh, being able to later offer help, I began to walk the path of freedom. Gandhi said, and I want to say this because some of us in recovery struggle with the word God because we identify as Buddhist and we don't see that there's a deity running our lives. But Gandhi said, God is truth. You know, for for many of us Buddhists, we say God is the Dharma. It's God is just a three-letter word. You know, in Buddhism we say, uh, a finger at the moon, pointing at the moon is not the moon. The word God is not God. It points to a mystery that's far beyond my ability to fully comprehend. Well, Gandhi said, God is truth, and confronting our illusion and admitting the truth is essential. Recognizing our self-defeating and self-destructive habits of mind and body, giving things the correct name is essential. And I came to find out through this investigation that what I thought was righteous righteous, uh, indignation was really self-centered fear. And that what I thought was freedom was selfishness. That when I harmed others, I also harmed myself. And I, I learned the practice in recovery to write these things down, to write down the ways in which I'd harmed myself and other people, and to become willing to make amends for those things when I could. Um, and this helped me step out of the chaos of addiction with something precious 
to offer the world a pinpoint of peace of awakening that came to me as I did this inner work. Addiction is contagious in the sense that it seems to run in families. It, it's on both sides of my family, going all the way back to Ireland. And if we're in the thrall of addiction, we tend to gravitate towards the comfort of being with other addicts. Now, there's a saying in our literature that says uh, uh, we, we, we had to find that we could not drink like other people. I did drink like other people, but they were alcoholics. <laughs> so I, I, had to come, I had to come to terms with this. Um, but recovery is also contagious, and it's passed. We say Buddhism is passed from warm hand to warm hand. Recovery is passed from warm hand to warm hand. We encourage one another. We influence others in a positive way, often without even being aware of it. And we walk this path of recovery, and we walk this path of practice together. We shine a light on one small corner of the world to reach out and help another suffering person. And we taste the sweetness of our freedom and the universe that is open to us despite certain limitations. For those of us who've been lucky enough to find the path of Buddhist practice, we find the gift of Sangha, of fellowship, which is right in the name of your group, the gift of being with other people who want what we want and who will walk the illuminated path of practice along with us. This is where we find companionship, humor, encouragement, and strength. Uh, Hokusan, a wonderful Buddhist teacher, said, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, said, Having had the good fortune not only to have been born into this world as a human being, but also to have encountered the teaching of the great Shakyamuni Buddha, how can we help but be overjoyed? So these, these practices we take up in Buddhism of being honest with ourselves, being honest with others, paying attention to how we are in the world, trying not to harm others or ourselves, this is spinning straw into gold. So thank you so much for your kind attention. And uh, we can have a discussion now. And I'd, I'd love to hear whatever came to your mind as I blathered on. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, for myself, these twin paths of practice and recovery are inextricable from one another. And, and thank you for indulging me because I know you're not all in recovery, but I hope you can see this is kind of a metaphor or a way of, of addressing, you know, some of us are addicted to screen time or, or obsessive busyness or uh, toxic relationships or toxic behaviors. So I hope you found something to identify with because we're all, uh, you know, my partner David, uh, saw his son making a valentine, not his son, his grandson, making a valentine. And uh, David said to Skyler, who's that valentine for? And Skyler said, Wyatt. And David said, who's Wyatt? And Skyler said, a human. (laughs) (laughs) I was was so touched by that. I thought we could all just see each other as a human. that religious divisions cause violence and suffering. It's, uh, 
It's just mystifying how we treat one another in this world, you know. Now we forget that we're all just humans doing the best we can. So I'd love to hear from you. The floor is open. Yes? I'd like to go back to the very beginning of our time together. Um, when you went through Meta and, you know, there are different versions of it, I was, I, it just struck me. It's like, may, may you be healthy, may you uh, not suffer, may you find joy. And it's all like, the, the teaching of Buddhism is that we can't do that really. Mm-hmm. Right? We, unless we, uh, when and if we become Buddha, a Buddha, Bodhisattva, we can't um, get rid of suffering. We can't be healthy. We're all going to get sick and die. So it just struck me as sort of a, I don't know, a dichotomy or a strange. <laughs> well, you're striking on such a beautiful paradox in Buddhism. You know, when we, we chant at Zen Center, and, um, beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Dharma gates are endless. I vow to enter them. We can't fully do it. And when I came to Zen Center and I heard about sickness, old age, and death, which were the forms of suffering that the Buddha encountered, you know, he escaped his protective compound and went into the village and saw people who were sick and old and dying. Well, when I heard about sickness, old age, and death, I certainly didn't think they were talking about me. (laughs) Well, now I'm 74 years old. (laughs) And 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 I'm coming to terms with the fact that, no, we cannot end suffering as long as we're in a human body. So it's a kind of paradox that we wish for an end of suffering, even though there's always been suffering and there always will be suffering. But I do think we we can come to terms with the ways in which we can be of help. And, you know, when I found myself sitting in a classroom at San Francisco State at the age of 35 after gotten gotten pitifully drunk the night before, I'd gone back to school to get my teaching credential, and it dawned on me that I could not be worthy of teaching kids unless I stopped drinking. Something deep inside me called out, please, please help me. I'd never done that before. I didn't know what I was asking for help. But if we, can, if we can do that, if we can ask the universe for help, you know, I found in recovery that our, our collective intention to stay sober was a power greater than myself. And I got better. So change is possible. And if we, if we right now we're engaging in our collective intention to wake up as people who are in alignment with Buddhist teaching. So it's... it's it's, a, it's a, just a very crazy paradox that we aspire to end all suffering, and yet we know we can't. But we can all do something. You know, Suzuki Roshi said, shine one corner of the world. Pick something. Pick some place where you can have an impact. It doesn't feel like much, but, you know, like that butterfly flapping its wings in the, um, in the Amazon, we don't know how our kindness will spread out and help other beings. And by the same token, we don't know how our anger and impatience and irritability will spread out and affect others. Talking, Speaking of metaphors, traffic is a great metaphor for <laughs> ego at work, you know. Thank you so much for asking that. That's, Thank um, you. It's a koan we, we have to practice with. Yes? 
I loved um, an analogy in Yiddish, and I never heard it before, which was that um, a finger pointing at the moon isn't the moon, mm-hmm. and the name of God is just a finger pointing at the moon. I've never heard that before, and I'm curious, context for that, is that... Um, uh, but it's teaching, is that something? It, it, you know? It's a Zen teaching. I can't tell you exactly where it came from. But, you know, when I first started practicing and I would hear these quirky Zen stories, uh, and I heard that phrase, I didn't really know what that meant. But I stored these things away, and then it, as my life unfolded, it would dawn on me, oh, that's like a finger pointing at the moon. It's not the moon. And a lot of these, uh, when I... When I would hear these Zen stories, I think, I think they were holding the sutra upside down when they translated it. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, hold that phrase as you go forth from this place, and um, I think you'll see that it, it, it will reverberate a little bit in your life, mm-hmm. that a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. And you know what? It's very widely applicable. So my idea about you is just my idea about you. It's not you. And even my ideas about myself are not me. It's just a finger pointing at the moon. And I love the playfulness of that phrase as well, you know. And um, in recovery, I've I've sponsored other people, and I've been sponsored by other people. And and I love the encouragement we have in Buddhism to just play with Buddhist teachings and see what works for you. Even he encouraged us to do that. And we can do that in, in recovery, too, to play with the things that we're offered in recovery and see what works what works for us. A finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Um, Laura, we have um, Bob online who has raised his hand. I wanted to thank you for the story you told and also for describing how you asked for help with um, going through recovery and getting recovery. To me, that's the moral of the story you told. The miller's daughter doesn't solve the problem. She gets the help of the fellow who goes out and learns some don't skin the name. And I think we learn when we've got a problem, no matter how insurmountable it may seem, it's good to ask for help. You know, thank you for so much for that. And you know what? I've told this story so many times to kids and to my daughter, and... It never occurred to me before, who else helps her? The little man. <laughs> you know, Rumpelstiltskin helps her. He helps her, and he's a very contentious little being who wants everything from her. But uh, I, I, I think maybe another message of the story that never occurred to me is that our unskillful behavior and our, the negative sides of ourselves are one end of a stick, you know. So, for example, my alcoholism was a terrible uh, curse or spell I was under, but enabled me to find this beautiful life of recovery. And so Rumpelstiltskin is a, is a weird little guy, and yet he leads her, enables her to have a beautiful daughter. Let's not talk about the king and his problems, but, you know, so sometimes our, um, the very things that we reject in ourselves are the things that can help us help shine a light on our lives. So, thanks, Bob, <laughs> for that, that comment. Yes, yes, we, we all need help. And for some of us, that's the hardest thing to ask for.
Murakki, I have a question um, about, did you come to Buddhism after recovery or um, because, I mean, Buddhists can't be addicts? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that is a really great question. Uh, I, I hit what we call an alcoholic bottom when I lived in Juneau, Alaska. When I, I had been having a lot of fun around using because it gave me a lot of energy and creativity, I thought, and the ability to talk to people. But it started to turn on me when I started having blackouts. And I came to out of a blackout, some of you have heard this, crawling through the snow. Well, that got my attention. And I, I, I felt I was actually suicidal at the time. Uh, because I, I felt in such a dark place. But I had this little glimmer of hope. Maybe there's another way to live. So I came back to San Francisco, and, and that's when I came to Zen Center. And I stopped drinking just, just like that. I started practicing Zen, and I, I loved the clarity of practice. I loved sitting Zazen. I was kind of addicted to it, because of the endorphins you get when you sit for long periods of time. Um, but I made this mistake of thinking, I can put on a black robe and be somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another thought I had in that classroom at San Francisco State was, I've been practicing, uh, because what happened was, uh, yeah, I stopped drinking, but then when I came back from Tassajara and I was living in a monastery where alcohol was pretty hard to get, uh, alcohol started creeping back into my life. But at that point, for the next five years, it was intermittent drinking and secret drinking because it wasn't okay for me to drink the way I like to drink. I just had to do it because I'm an alcoholic. And so I've, I needed to come into the rooms of recovery. And by the way, when I walked into my first meeting, there was somebody from Zen Center there, and we looked at each other and burst out laughing. Now, you said Buddhists can't be addicts. Another thought that came to me in that, in that room at San Francisco State was, I could think of many Buddhist teachers who'd harmed or destroyed their communities because they could not confront their addiction. You probably know some of their names. They could sit still for seven days like I could, but, and they could deliver beautiful Dharma talks, and yet they could not stop drinking, using drugs, or having sex with their students. And that's been a terrible shadow side of Buddhism in our country. So. Maybe some people have been able to get sober just using Buddhism. For me, I didn't want to try to... I I found it was much better for me to take what was offered in recovery and mix it in with my Buddhist practice. And together, that gave me a a tremendous safety net uh, against this disease, which is a disease that wants to kill me and almost did. And I've lost friends along the way. I've even had friends... um, I've lost friends to suicide who could not stop hmm. drinking because they couldn't get out of that dark, dark hole. Hmm. Uh, so thank you for that. Yeah. How are we doing on time? We have time for. I was going to say something. I had my hand but This is John. Is that voice? Hi, John. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Anyway, I just thank you, Laura, for a um, very heartfelt talk that really moved me. And um, I was just thinking about the power of not knowing the name and how that's uh, a process.
not just knowing in the fairy tale, of course, it happens once and not just don't and disappears. But my experience in my life is that I, there's a, an ongoing process of forgetting and remembering the name. And that's kind of why I have to um, stay active in my recovery and also come to the Sangha and hear teachers remind me of my true self and my true intention. Um, and the, even the, what you described about that point at which your mind is wandering and you turn around and come back to the breath, that's also a kind of remembrance of the name. And um, so I just feel like I have to, in order for me to stay on this middle path, um, I need others uh, to remind me and, uh, of the direction and the purpose. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, John. That's so true. Uh, when, I, when I studied Spanish in Mexico, I made a wonderful friend, Chai, um, who was so much fun. And um, we would meet. He was my intercomputer. So we'd, we'd meet and we'd, we'd speak English and then we'd speak Spanish. And he taught me this wonderful proverb that I've shared many times, maybe even here, I used to be able to say it in Spanish, but he said, uh, each person has four parts. The part that everybody knows, the part that everybody but that person knows, (laughs) the part that only that person knows, and the part that nobody knows. And so thank, thank you to John for this reminder that this is, we don't just get it, you know, we don't just grasp it and hang on to it. And even enlightenment is not something we grasp. We have moments of awakening, and then we fall asleep again, and then we wake up again. And so this process of knowing who we really are, um, you know, in recovery I had to find out that I didn't need to become a better person. I needed just to be who I actually was, the being that drugs and alcohol uh, prevented me from knowing, you know. So um, what intrigues me about those four parts of the person, of course, is the part that everybody but that person knows. (laughs) And of course, when I heard that, I thought, oh yeah, everybody sees all my faults, the faults I can't even see myself. But guess what? Other people also see wonderful things about us that we aren't aware of. You know, and sometimes somebody will say to me, I'll never forget when you said, and I, I braced myself. <laughs> oh, no, what did I say? What did I say? And they say, you said, you said this thing that opened a, a door for me. And I, I didn't even remember saying it. You know? So this is, the, this is the beauty of Sangha, that, that in being with other people, it can help. You know what I said about, about Thomas, St. Thomas? Being with others can call forth that which is within us that we haven't been able to call forth. I mean, that certainly happened to me working with children. You know, I got sober at San Francisco State because there were, there were meetings on campus. There were also pictures of beer available in the student center, which had not been there when I was there when I was 18. And I, I am so, so very happy that I was able to teach kids without ever having alcohol in my breath. And many teachers have told me they had a bottle of doers in their, you know, in their desk at school. Um, 
So that I'm so grateful that I was able to be with children and learn from children because my those of you who are teachers probably feel the same way that your your children you teach are your are your teachers, you know. I'll never forget in class one time I used that old cliche, great minds think alike. And Paul raised his hand and said, No, they don't. That's what makes them great. <laughs> young boy grew up to invent something that's, uh, he's in the Fortune 500 now because of this invention of his, which is a way, I don't quite know how it works, but a way of trapping CO2 with big trucks. So, great minds. <laughs> yes? Hi, I'm Terry. Thank you, Laura, so much. I'm so glad I came here today um, to spend time with everyone here and hear your talk. And, um, well, it's really, um, I loved how you talked about uh, during your seven-day meditation about your musical. Um, and especially just after, I don't know how long our sitting was, 15 or 20 minutes, and I would completely failed at meditating, I felt like, you know, and my mind was wandering. And, uh, and it reminded me, when you said that, of... Uh, um, uh, something my sponsor often says is that we're not responsible for our first thought. Um, but we are responsible for our second thought, um, or what we, the action that we take. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought that um, is an interesting reflection also just of sitting and meditating. Mm -hmm. And um, it was something I'd love to be able to do better, I suppose. Well, I think it's kind of an illusion to think you fail at med meditation. Because just, just sitting down, as, we, as you did, you know, and being with other people who have the same intention, and, and you probably did come back to your breath many times. That is meditation, you know. And when I was meditating today, I remembered a line from one of the songs I sang in The Wizard of Oz as Dorothy. I'll share it with you now. Because <laughs> it's a story of a girl growing up in Salina, Kansas, who comes out to California to practice Buddhism. You know. Somewhere in California, near L.A., that's where I'll get enlightened. That's where I'll make good pay. <laughs> I still have that script somewhere. I did produce that play, and you know, there's a, there's a tradition in Zen that in the middle of a practice period, you you celebrate. You have a celebration because it's a very rigorous time during practice period. And one of the traditions is to make fun of the Roshi. So our Roshi at the time, Richie Baker, was on the phone all the time. And so part of my part of my musical comedy was that Dorothy goes to the land of Zaz and she knocks on the door and and his the, the, the Roshi's assistant comes to the door and he just keeps saying, He's on the phone. He's on the phone. <laughs> and you know, Richard Baker wasn't he wasn't there when I did this, this play, but I wonder if he ever he probably did hear about that. <laughs> I had a I had a student uh, 
who uh, he was the youngest student in our school to to come out as gay when he was in fourth grade. When, when he was thir in third grade, he was very dramatic, very volatile, you know. And I I took him aside, and I probably told this story here before, but I took him aside and I said, you know, you're so emotional and so dramatic. You might really love theater. I said, I grew up doing community theater, and I, I was in a lot of plays in high school. I majored in drama when I went to college, and I, I always wanted to be an actor when I grew up. And he looked at me and said, so Laura, what made you abandon your dreams? <laughs> and I said, there's plenty of drama in third grade. <laughs> yes. Um, this is slightly off topic, but were you aware of what, what kids were gay as they came through your classroom? Or did you have an intuition or what? I did sometimes. Uh -huh. I did sometimes. Uh, and you know, there's, there's. When I went back to my school this uh, week to see a performance, uh, there were a couple of transgender kids that I had just had questions about maybe some uh, gender identity issues with them when they were in third grade. I, I had a little girl named Robin in my class who who was quite a, quite a tomboy, you know, and she was uh, very athletic. And she played on a boys' soccer team. She was a great soccer player. And um, they, they were going to go into the playoffs. And her coach said to her, you know, Robin, um, we're not allowed to have any girls on the team for the playoffs. And she said, what? He says, what do you say? Do you want to play anyway? Because he thought they wouldn't notice that she was a girl. She had very short hair, and she was really tough, you know. So she played in that game, and they won, and then she said to the other team, you got beat by a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran into Robin and her wife. You know, when I was, was my daughter and I went to get a Christmas tree, and there was Robin and her, and her beautiful wife. So um, my, I, I really felt when I was teaching kids that I wanted to touch that tender heart of who they were. And many times they felt different than other kids. I felt different than other kids growing up and so I wanted to meet those children heart to heart and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that boy who asked me why I abandoned my dreams isn't in musical theater right now. <laughs> Thank you. I think maybe that's all the time. So I, I, I just want to say I, I really love coming here. I always feel so warmly welcomed by you and, and you call forth something within me so I really appreciate that. Today? Yes. Um, <laughs> so please stay and enjoy the company of the Zanga. There are refreshments and have a cup of hot tea if you like. Uh, if you use a cup, just put it in the uh, sink and I will wash them. I'll be going around with the Donna Bowl to accept contributions to cover our expenses. Your generosity is appreciated. Um, donations in the range of 10 to $20 help us on immediate expenses. And these include the honorarium for our armor teachers, rent on this beautiful center, and quarterly newsletter mailed mostly to people in prison. There's a newcomer's sign-up sheet in the Credenza. If you wish to be included and receive our Sangha membership directly, please sign up and include your contact information for if you wish to share with our group. Some members go out to lunch after the meeting. Everyone is welcome to join them. Group meets at the front door around 12.30.
Any other announcements? Uh, next week, our speaker is uh, Larry Robinson, longtime environmental and social justice activist. He's a retired eco-psychologist and former mayor of Sebastopol. Huh? He serves on the board of directors of the Center for Climate Protection and the board of trustees of Meridian University. His large and foolish project, in the words of Rumi, is to restore the soul of the world through reawakening the oral tradition of poetry. Can I just also say before we end that I'd like to shamelessly plug my books. Yes. And there, there's some postcards out there with uh, the two kids' books in my book, uh, The Zen Way of Recovery. And you can, through the magic of modern technology, you can order those books right off the back. There's one of those little, what do you call it? Barcode? Barcode, or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> I can't do that myself. Your <laughs> book is really good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We're way into shameless here. <laughs> <laughs> How much did you pay him for that? <laughs> 25 cents later. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess there are, there are ways to help to, to do service in, the, in our sangha. Um, we do, we're also looking for hosts and substitute hosts and uh, Zoom technicians. So if anybody's interested in. Uh, Contributing to the song of speaking after uh, during the social hour. Would you like to offer the dedication? I would. I would. Okay. 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 Taking a deep breath, release something in your We offer our practice to all beings in the ten directions, past, present, and future. May we be a little light in the darkness, uh, agent of peace in a troubled world. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. May we be happy. May we be joyous and live in safety. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.